When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dario Perkins envisions a world of higher inflation, which may come down, but will constantly be threatening to push past the 2% mark. In this discussion with Rao from May of this year, Dario Perkins dubs this era the tangible 20s, a time when you want to be exposed to real assets rather than the growth stocks that were so popular in the past decade. Despite taping in the spring, this interview holds up because of Dario's long-term views and actionable ideas. Enjoy. Macro-investing is a journey. Join me, Raoul Powell, as I go on a journey of discovery through the macro landscape. This is how I build my macro framework, by talking to the smartest people in the world. Dario, fantastic to get you on Real Vision. It's been a long time coming, right? Yeah, I think we've been, we've been kind of Twitter friends for years, haven't we? I know. Um, Listen, it's a really big, confusing macro backdrop, and you've got some really interesting thoughts. So love to let you kind of – first, let's just go through your career and who you are, just so it frames it for everybody, and then we'll go through your big picture view and dig in a bit. Yeah, so I started my career in the late 90s at the UK Treasury. I was doing Gordon Brown's World Economy Forecast. Uh, I then spent five years at ABN AMRO uh, covering the European economy uh, until ABN AMRO got taken over by RBS and then nationalised. So I went back, went back to the Treasury with my tail between my legs uh, and um, helped them design the Financial Policy Committee, you know, the, the, the kind of financial stability version of the MPC, the Bank of England. So I did a lot of work on macroprudential policy, macroprudential tools. Uh, after a couple of years, I realised, or well, I started to remember all of the reasons I'd left the civil service in the first place and I didn't want to go back to investment banking and I you know I found uh, macro consultancy independent consultancy and I've been at TS Lombard ever since then so that was 2011. Fantastic so let's talk about your big picture macro views um, you know let's zoom out a bit um, what's going on where are we? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a mess. Um, I think that, you know, we've been we've been living through this this kind of fake business cycle, which I think has confused a lot of investors over the last two years. Um, you know, governments basically shut down their economies, reopen their economies, and it's created this this you know, what is essentially a fake business cycle. And and so, for the last two years, I've had investors saying to me all the time, "Where are we in the business cycle?" Well, you know, this ain't a business cycle. This is, this is, this has been a pandemic, and you know, we're we're starting to emerge from that pandemic, and now we've got we're overlaying that with the war in Ukraine and with the slowdown in China, and everything has suddenly got very messy. And I think we were always going to get um, this kind of growth scare this year. I, I think that was almost inevitable, given you know the kind of narratives that people were talking about at the start of the year, all this stuff about roaring twenties. There was a lot of extrapolation going on. You know, people were extrapolating that reopening of the economy into this kind of new secular boom. And I think, you know, this next this next decade will probably look quite different for the global economy. I think we're going to get higher inflation. We're certainly going to get much more volatile inflation than people have been used to. 
Uh, I think the, the inflation numbers that we're seeing right now probably overstate how bad inflation is going to be. Uh, I think inflation will probably come down pretty dramatically over the next few years, but it is going to be higher. And we are going to be in a different type of wealth than the one that we're in, we were in before. Uh, and I think, you know, there are certain new secular growth drivers that are coming through, things like housing, uh, climate change. You know, we're going to get massive public and private investment in green technologies. Uh, so it's going to be a different type of economy. We're not going to have that zero rate perma QE world anymore. And I think that, you know, financial markets are, are struggling to understand what that means. But I think at the moment, it's all about this this growth scare. Um, and, you know, it isn't just the, the kind of mechanical growth scare that, would always, that was always going to happen because of the reopening. Um, we're overlaying that with, you know, a very significant slowdown in China, which is partly the lockdowns, but it's also about a growth model that is basically broken in China. This kind of Ponzi financed housing market, which has come to the end of the road. And then in Europe, we've got this massive cost of living crisis, you know, the biggest squeeze on households budgets since the 1940s. So we've got these very recessionary trends that are starting to develop in Europe and in China. And then in the US, you, you, you've got this very rapid tightening in, in financial conditions that come from a very aggressive Fed. And, you know, my worry is that, you know, hopefully the, this, this growth scare is enough to stop central banks from, you know, really becoming much too aggressive. But I think central banks are really scared right now. I think that they can see um, this kind of this test, this 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 kind of ghost of the 1970s. And I think you know, that is naturally making central banks overreact to the inflation that we're seeing. And I just worry that's going to continue. And if it does, then we're going to be cutting this cycle pretty short, I think. And, and that recession that you've been thinking about could happen a lot earlier than people are expecting. Yeah, that's kind of, I think it feels baked in the cake. I had the same view as you that it's going to be a, a growth shock. And now I'm thinking, actually, the financial tightening from not only the rate of increase of rates, but also because of the cost of living, the rise in commodity prices and all of the other and the rise of the dollar is like, feels like it's pretty baked in the cake here now. But I'm feeling that maybe it comes faster and last less. So it's that idea that you had that we, we're still kind of, it's like the rubber ball's been bounced off the roof, dropped, and it, we get these sharp oscillations in the economy and the inflation cycle for a while. Yeah, I mean, you know, China is clearly that the, the lockdown is, is really compounding the, the economy's weakness right now. So that's going to get much worse over the next month or so. Uh, but will probably be quite short lived in the sense that, you know, the delta is going to improve quite quickly as China reopens. Uh, Europe, you know, you, you effectively have a, a recession that is being caused by high inflation and the inflation is being imported from the rest of the world. But it is a very intense squeeze on real incomes. But those kinds of recessions fade quite quickly. So you look at the 1970s, we, we basically had three of those recessions. You had you know, a very rapid acceleration in inflation. And then that causes this recessionary squeeze on real incomes. But then real incomes bounce back quite quickly because those price gains don't continue you know, or, or they start to decelerate. So I think, you know, that there is a chance that we, we recover from this quite quickly. Uh, I just think for the next three months, the data is going to look horrible. You know, every part of the world is going to look really horrible. And then for the US, which is probably better placed than anywhere else, it's about the most cyclical parts of the economy getting hit most hard. So housing, consumer durables, there was always going to be a rotation anyway in, in the, the, the nature of US consumption from goods to services. That was always going to cause a lot of noise. But when you think about the leading indicators that economists use, you know, the IMF, these central banks, 
they're all based on manufacturing and the manufacturing outlook is going to get really nasty over the next few months. So all of these leading indicators are going to turn south, you know, really sharply. And I think that's going to spook a lot of people. And I think if you want to be optimistic about this, we, we kind of need that right now just to, to stop these central bankers from freaking out and just overdoing it in the policy tightening. But has the bond market done not just done the tightening anyway? It's like we didn't need the central bank. You know, the you know two-year rate of change of two-year yields everywhere has been one of the fastest in history. They kind of did the tightening and the Fed have done basically nothing. I mean, none of the central banks have. Well, they've they've moved rates with their with their hawkishness. So you know that there's been this very profound shift from the Fed. The issue is that they then have to validate those expectations, otherwise that tightening reverses very quickly. Uh, I think you know that that first. It's not that first phase of tightening which worries me because there's basically two phases to this. So the first one is they want to get back to neutral, some sense of neutral, as quickly as they can. And this very rapid policy tightening is really analogous to turning the economy back on. You know, when we did, we, t- we turned the economy off and on again. We turned monetary policy off and on again. So, you know, it's, it's this that it's not a normal tightening cycle in that sense, in the same way this isn't a normal business cycle. This is just about central banks trying, get, trying to get back to where they were before the pandemic as quickly as they possibly can, given that the economy is effectively reopened now. Um, the next phase of the tightening is the one that I think you need to worry about. So this is central banks saying the economy's reopened, let's get back to neutral as quickly as possible. But they're worried about inflation. So um, they think inflation is going to come down. So that transitory narrative is still very much alive in their forecasts and in terms of what they say. But they're, they're, you know, they're, they're becoming more and more worried that that view is wrong and that the inflation is going to stick. And if that's the case, they're going to have to go beyond neutral. And at the moment, we, we basically have that first phase of tightening priced into financial markets, the normalization of policy you know, from the Fed, the ECB, all of these central banks. The next phase is how tight are they going to have to be? How much are they going to have to actively squeeze the demand out of the economy? And that really depends on where inflation settles. And my guess is that if inflation settles below 4%, central banks will take that. You know, They'll be delighted with that given where we are now. Uh, if inflation settles above 4%, then everything we know from history suggests that's when they'll really get aggressive with the rate tightening. And I think, you know, if you're a central banker right now and you're looking at what's happening with inflation, I think they can't help but have this voice in the back of their head saying, you're doing it again. You know, you're making the same mistakes that central banks made in the 1970s. And it's part of central banks believing their own hype. You know, for the last 30, 40 years, Central banks are basically taking credit for the fact that inflation has been consistently low. You know, it was their credibility that was anchoring inflation expectations. I'm using their words to describe these really silly concepts that central banks believe. Um, but if you know, they start to see a threat to that credibility, if they start to worry about that kind of 1970s secular inflation story, then they have to react to that. And, and certainly, you know, you're getting the ECB starting to talk about the, the Bundesbank credibility. You're getting, you know, Jerome Powell talking about um, Volcker and repeating what Volcker did. You know, this is all getting kind of scary from my perspective because, you know, central banks believing their own bullshit, I think, is the thing that we have to worry about most in this in this type of environment. Now, do you think the economy can actually take positive real rates or does the structural demographic issues and the debt issues mean that they can't really do it and demand destruction writ large happens as soon as we get here because we've got here now essentially to to kind of just about positive real rates and the economy's imploding 
I, I think the, the economy is imploding just because of this massive squeeze on real incomes that's coming from a, a lot of this kind of cost push inflation. So this supply side inflation. So that that's the you know the big problem. I think given the rapid tightening in in interest rates that we've had in the Fed, naturally you get a slowdown in housing transactions. You know that happens every time mortgage approvals suddenly plummet. Uh, consumer goods, you know, particularly auto demand starts to to to, to um, tank. I think that's all kind of natural. But in terms of the level of interest rates, you know, I see no reason why the economy can't live with the interest rates it had before the pandemic. I think that over time, that kind of underlying interest rate will start to go up. So yes, demographics is, is you know, not a good story for interest rates long term. But there are other things coming through. So if you believe that, that we're going to get these big public and private investment in green technology, that's going to push interest rates higher over time. So that kind of equilibrium interest rate should start to go up. Uh, I think that we've got a decent productivity story coming through underlying all this. So the, the new technologies, and, and this is the kind of echoes from the World War II economy. So, you know, these are technologies that were available. Yeah, I want to go through that whole thesis. Yeah, so, so these are technologies that were available before the pandemic, but they've only really, you know, gained traction during it. Uh, I think there's a strong housing demand uh, story. So, you know, if we're all now working from home, we can live further away from the office, which means that you're bringing in new first time buyers that were priced out of housing over the last decade. So I think there are these and, and for the US, there is actually a demographic um, uh, a kind of hump of people moving into their 30s, which naturally supports housing demand over the next decade. Uh, Europe doesn't have that. Japan obviously doesn't have that. China doesn't have that. But for the US, there's a decent story there. So I think over time, uh, this this kind of underlying terminal interest rate should start to go up. I just worry that central banks get too far ahead of that because they freak out about the inflation data that they're seeing right now, and they cut that process short. So let's talk about a view that we both share, which is the 70s is the wrong example of this, and actually the post-war period was the most, because I think a lot, of, a lot of people don't really understand this period. Do you want to talk through yeah. your your kind of thinking on that, because it's fascinating. Yeah, so uh, post-World War II, you have uh, massive pent-up demand. So we had five years of rationing. You had excess savings, which has been the theme of the last six months, you know, massive excess savings uh, because, because of the rationing, but because people were told to save more during the war and a lot of stuff wasn't available. And then you unleashed this pent-up demand but you also had, you know, really serious problems on the supply side. So, it, I mean, it seems obvious, but, you know, many of the ports have been destroyed. Global shipping was a mess. There was this big surge in demand for commodities, which caused commodity prices to go through the roof. Even if you look at labour markets, you had this massive mismatch in labour markets. So, again, you know, that's the theme right now. Um, you, had, you had very high levels of job vacancies, but the people that were available to work didn't necessarily have the skills because we basically took a whole bunch of people that had been fighting in the war and tried to bring them back into the labour market. And that you know, process was difficult. So that combination of pent-up demand and very severe supply disruption caused this massive surge in prices. So US uh, prices jumped about 20%, UK prices jumped 40%. But the thing about that inflation was that it was transitory in the sense that central banks didn't react to it. So they weren't allowed to. So it would have been unpatriotic to raise interest rates aggressively. So you didn't have any monetary tightening. And yet inflation came down rapidly by itself. So over the course of about two years, inflation went to very low levels again without any monetary tightening. And so what we didn't get is we didn't get that kind of spiraling in wages and prices. 
So the thing that worries central banks about the 1970s is that when you had the same kind of cost shock, you had this spiraling of wages and prices and ended up with this decade long inflation problem. Now, that spiraling is very specific to the 1970s. It didn't happen in the 40s. It hasn't happened in any other period in history. We've had plenty of big oil price shocks over the past 30 years. None of those have caused this spiraling of wages and prices. And I think most narratives of what happened in the 1970s really miss what it was all about. You know, effectively, it was a power conflict. So you'd had this slowdown in productivity, and then you had this conflict between workers and capital about who should bear the cost of that slowdown in productivity. So we had a young militant population, we had powerful trade unions, we had wage indexation, you had companies that had a lot of market power, there was no globalization, there was no competition, there was no technology. And so you naturally had this kind of spiraling dynamic of wages and prices, but there's no other period in which we see that. It was also the largest group of 30-year-olds in all recorded history, all at the same time, buying their first house, car, suit, tie, all of that. So exactly. it was, I think it was a demand shock. Exactly. So you had, this, you had this young militant population that were part of a trade union and were not prepared to take a squeeze on their, on their real income. So it's basically a power struggle. And I, I always say that inflation is ultimately about power. I think that's one of the reasons that it's so emotive and it gets people so upset. You know, you mentioned inflation on Twitter and everyone's having a fight about it. I think that's ultimately what it comes down to. It's that power struggle. And so we spent the last 40 years dismantling the economy that produced that inflation. So we opened up our capital markets. We opened up our product markets. We crushed worker power. You know, we destroyed trade unions. We used globalization. We used immigration. We destroyed worker bargaining power. And so, you know, that's what neoliberalism was. You know, it was basically an attack on inflation. And I just don't believe that those trends, those secular trends have completely changed in the last 12 months. I, I just think that's fanciful at this point. So I can't see that kind of wage price spiral, that kind of power conflict breaking out again. And instead, I think the 1940s is the much better template for what we're going through right now. My worry is that central banks are behaving as if it's the 1970s, when it's much closer to the 1940s. And that could cause some real problems over the next couple of years. So talk us through a bit more of the 1940s. So we start with this huge, you know, very similar to the post-pandemic era. We don't have the supply chains. Demand comes on. Prices explode. Economic growth looks good. It goes back down to negative inflation just from the year-on-year effects and all of that. Yeah. What happened to rates? What happened to real rates? You know, give us the structure of what happened then. And also then the infrastructure spending. There's a lot of similarities that I find, the infrastructure spending, that kind of thing as well. Yeah, so you had, um, well, on the stock market also behaved quite similar. So you had this immediate sell-off during the war and then a very powerful rebound while the war was still going on, which is very similar to what we saw during the pandemic. Uh, so you, you came out of the war with, you know, reasonably, reasonably good balance sheets, um, which is different to your conventional recessions. You had a lot of excess savings. So the savings rate is basically, so the US saving rate is basically comparable to how it's been over the past six months. I think it hit 20, 25% in the US. Um, it, you know, that, that savings never really went fully into the economy, but it clearly became a source of growth. So there was no negative savings in the US, which has been one of the things that people have been worried about. Um, you didn't have a monetary policy response. So central banks were effectively using yield, yield targeting, so yield control. Uh, so the Fed stuck to that, you know, very carefully during the 40s. So there was no monetary tightening. 
uh, long-term interest rates didn't go up, so real interest rates turned negative. So, you know, fiscal and monetary policy were, were very expansionary in that sense, and you had all of the, the kind of balance sheet, you know, boost that was coming through after the war and the pent-up demand. Uh, and, it, you know, for a period, it was very inflationary. But the thing is that the inflation then died down by itself. Now, you know, the other interesting thing, I think, from the 1940s is that these new secular growth drivers start to emerge. So you had, obviously, you had demographics, which is very different now, because uh, you had a very, you know, very rapid demographic boom coming out of the Second World War for obvious reasons. Um, but you also had, um, you know, big increases in in housing markets. So we had years of underinvestment in housing. So you had this housing boom coming out. Uh, you had this kind of uh, suburbanization. So people had seen what could happen in large cities. You know, when people were were too uh, when population density was too strong and they were getting bombed. So people wanted to move out of the cities. You had new technologies because of the auto industry. So you had people able to commute. Uh, and so you had um, people moving out of the cities, governments building, you know, big motorway networks um, led to this this kind of broadening of growth out of cities into the rest of the, the country. You had a very powerful productivity boom that came from these new technologies, technologies that were basically available like mass production uh, before the war, but only really came into use during the war. Um, and, you know, that continued afterwards. So you had 20 years of an auto boom everywhere. Um, and I think you can see some kind of gentle similarities to that now. So, you know, there are these secular trends at the beginning to emerge, as I said, housing, productivity, uh, new technologies that were available, like, you know, the way we're talking now, but people didn't really use this. Um, I think you have a, a housing boom that comes from uh, people working, you know, out, outside of the office for at least, you know, two, three times a week. So they live further away. Uh, and, you know, for the US, there is a decent near-term demographic story because of the, the the profile of the age. You know, people moving into the 30s. So there are. So I, you know, I think you know when you look across that whole period, there are these kind of glaring similarities. The immediate post-war period with the inflation, but that dying down by by itself, and then these new secular growth drivers beginning to emerge through the 40s and 50s that give you a very different type of economy coming out. So you think about the Great Depression. I mean, the, the Second World War basically ended the Great Depression. And we've been in that kind of mini depression since the global financial crisis. You know, and also, they both started with a financial crisis. So you can think back even further and think, you know, 1929 financial crisis, then we have a long depression. It, this all sounds eerily similar, doesn't it? And, and certainly this is a much better parallel than some kind of imaginary ghost of the 1970s. But that's the ghost that is haunting central banks. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know if you've, you've read or a fan of the book, The Fourth Turning, but that's basically the whole premise as well that the demographic structural shift is almost a replay of, of that whole period. And it feels to me that, okay, the big problem the world has got, one of the big problems is the debt levels. Well, we had the same in the 40s, but we had negative real rates for an extended period of time and growth. So therefore, debt to GDP levels came down. I think that is possibly doable this time around. Yes, we don't have as big a demographic push. We're talking about the, the massive 
change of supply chains. So people bring factories back to the United States. Sure, they don't employ people because they employ robots, but it's productivity gains and will bring capital back. Same with the ESG. I mean, Europe is going to get rid of fossil fuels. Yeah. I mean, which is an extraordinary statement, and they will take some pain to do it. Yeah. But that kind of investment plus defence spend, that's a big deal for Europe. It's, it's a very different policy mix. So if you ask me why we had this kind of terrible growth environment for, and, and very low inflation and you know yields at 800-year lows before COVID, I think it was a really messed up policy mix. You know, we had fiscal policy that was generally too tight, but very effective. So the fiscal multipliers were huge. And we had monetary policy that was super loose but very ineffective because we'd already hit the lower bound on interest rates and you know it's becoming increasingly difficult for central banks to stimulate their economy and the idea that many of these governments had including the UK government that I was part of you know at the start of that process so 2010 um, they believed that the monetary the loose monetary policy could offset the impact of the austerity and you know looking back 10 years that just looks ludicrous and so I think that we're going to emerge from this pandemic with a very different type of policy mix going forward so yes, you know, we'll have tighter monetary policy, so central banks that want to raise interest rates, and over time we'll be able to raise interest rates. Just to give people expectations, if you think the interest rate, the neutral rate of interest, I don't know, prior to the pandemic was maybe 2%, where is it in your new world? Is it 3%, 4%? What is the, what is the level? So I think right now that the interest rate at which the economy starts to really, you know, slow down from the fact that monetary policy is too tight is probably about three and a half percent on long term interest rates in the US. So I did some work looking at uh, debt sustainability. So what you do is you look at debt servicing ratios for companies and for households. And, you know, those debt servicing ratios depend firstly on the level of debt, but also the level of interest rates. And then you shock the level of interest rates and you look at those debt servicing ratios and try to figure out when they become a really significant squeeze. And so in terms of households, uh, we're a long way from that because households have continuously locked in lower and lower interest rates. And we had a lot of deleveraging over the last decade. So we're a long way from interest rates really hurting US households. But it's the corporate sector is the problem because corporates have taken on a lot more debt over the last decade. Interest rates have been very low. But on my numbers, once you start to get to 3.5% on long-term interest rates, that's when you start to get a really significant squeeze on corporates. Now, I think that if we can get growth you know, higher and inflation higher over the next decade, then that level of sensitivity starts to, starts to come down and the interest, the, the, the interest rate starts to go up. Just because you, know, you think of it in terms of debt sustainability, the famous kind of R minus G, um, you know, the level of interest rates versus the level of growth. And we're talking about higher levels of nominal growth. And so if companies' nominal profits are going up more quickly than they did over the last decade, then you should be able to take a higher level of interest rates before you start to really suffer some problems. So I think that those those interest rates start to drift higher. But, you know, we're getting close to the point now for the US. If You, you know, the terminal rate that's priced into bond markets right now is about 3.2, 3.3. So we're getting close to the point where it starts to become a more significant squeeze. So if we're looking over the, the, the next decade, this period where we've probably got stronger nominal growth, what yeah. is the trend rate of inflation and what is the underlying interest rate, whether it's the Fed funds rate or whatever we're looking at? I just want to try and get the picture of, okay, are we negative real rates? Are we positive? 
What is the inflation? What, what, what does that structure look like that people should think about? Which is very different because people either think inflation or deflation. But what mm. you're saying is there's actually a different structure here. I'm, I'm, I'm calling this the tangible 20s. So we had a, a decade where it was intangible assets that went through the roof, um, you know, particularly growth stocks. You had this constant re-rating of growth stocks on the basis of zero interest rates forever. We're now getting into a world where interest rates will be higher, inflation will be higher. And so I think that as an investor, you want exposure to the real economy for all the reasons that you said. So you've got a housing boom, you've got the reconfiguration of global supply chains, which means that existing equity holders get hosed, but you're creating new new product lines, new supply chains, new value. Um, you're looking at you know very strong commodities. Uh, you're looking at you know big investment in green technologies. So all of those things start to push interest rates higher. My guess is that inflation isn't ever going to come back down to 2%. You know, it may come down very briefly to 2%, but we're not going to be living in a world where inflation is constantly at 2 or below 2 We're going to be living in a world where inflation is constantly threatening to push above 2 And my guess would be interest rates will probably be, I mean, that inflation will probably be about 100 basis points higher just because that's about the, 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 the number that you get from looking at the impact of globalization over the last decade. So if we're reversing globalization. But I think the, the big story as well is going to be volatility of inflation. So, you know, not only was inflation low over the last 20 years, but it's very, very stable and hardly moved. You know, all of these forces that we're talking about going forward are going to add a lot of volatility to inflation. So think about climate change. You have um, the, the transition itself, which is going to be, uh, you know, very volatile. We've seen that over the past six months because you know new green technologies are quite intermittent, so their supply comes and goes. So you get a lot of volatility from inflation on that side, but also the actual impact of climate change, which is going to be more, you know, physical supply disruption to the world economy, more shortages of food, and so that's going to create a lot of volatility inflation too. So on average, I think inflation is going to be higher. But it's going to be a lot more volatile. So we're going to have a lot more periods where you get transitory inflation. And again, you know, the, the 1940s, 1950s, same story. You see the volatility. You don't get the spiraling of inflation, but you see the volatility in inflation. One of the things I've been thinking through is I get the commodity story. I mean, stuff like copper is is once we get out of this slow growth, you know, the, the copper supply situation is very clear and the demand situation I'm thinking that's actually a barbell here, that potentially it's both growth plus inflation, because the technological growth period we're going through now is extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't stop. So it still becomes very investable. Whether the market discounts it somewhat by a higher rate of inflation kind of gets offset by the, the, the rapid exponential rate of growth. So it feels like for once a barbell strategy might work as opposed to an either or strategy. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I know mean, I think we're going to have higher growth, higher inflation. Um, it's it's going to be a very different type of world. And so, you know, the, the tangible twenties I think sums it up quite nicely. And and for me, you know, it's a world where that that if you look at the last decade and that that um, kind of secular stagnation and that massive outperformance of growth over value stocks, and you know, you can get data on this back to the nineteen forties or before. Um, that 2010s period is really unusual. And I think that world is coming to an end. And we're going to get back to a, a more normal world where, you know, the, 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 the financial sector more fully reflects what's actually happening in the, in the real economy. And that's why I call it the tangible 20s. But it kind of makes the assumption that 
technology and growth stocks don't do well? Or do you think that they both do well? My, my thesis is they both do well. Yeah, no, I, but I you're suggesting it's all time. At the moment, I think we're, we're adjusting to a higher interest rate world. So you've basically had this huge bubble over the past two years uh, in everything. And, you know, growth, growth stocks were a big part of that. And this view that interest rates were never going to go up and secular stagnation would probably get worse during COVID, you know, those are all kind of consensus views up until quite recently. And that led to this constant re-rating of those stocks. And we've now had this massive readjustment, you know, a massive rotation in financial markets. So we're starting to get back to where we were before the pandemic. You know, that you look at the PE ratio of the tech stock, it's basically back to where it was pre-COVID. That to me looks like a quite healthy environment. You know, those tech companies will still, you know, we still generate the profits that people are expecting, but they're not going to be continuously re-rated on the basis of very low interest rates. So we now get this secular... So, so, so the, e can, the E can go up, but it's not going to be the PE going up, essentially, is what you're saying. No, the, the E would be fine. But the, the fact is that we were living in a, in a kind of growth scarcity world. And so if you were a company that could promise you know, decent future earnings, you got constantly re-rated on the fact that nobody else was making any money. And so you had this you know, perma-zero rate environment. I think we've, we've basically burst that bubble now. And you know, the, the ratings have gone back to where they were. And we now have a secular environment, which is going to look quite different. And, you know, the earnings on those companies will still do well. You know, there are a lot of very good tech companies. They've had this massive productivity outperformance compared to the rest of the economy over the last decade because the technological diffusion wasn't there. I think we're starting to see the technological diffusion. But I think the big story is that kind of constant re-rating is gone. Uh, And we'll have a world where, you know, value starts to do a lot better. And that, that's kind of the world that we, we're usually in. You know, the 2010s were really unusual. That constant, just do a chart of value versus growth back to the 1940s and look at the last decade. It looks like a hockey stick. <laughs> you know, value constantly outperforms and then suddenly 2010, something profoundly changes in the world. And I think we're going back to a, a bit more normal environment. And, and I think this is a much healthier environment because you think about why we lived in that secular stagflation world, you know, really bad policy mix, but massive inequality, you know, kind of widening polarization in politics. You know, you, you only need to look beyond a kind of very myopic view of the stock market to say that this was actually quite disturbing the way these trends were evolving. And if you want to go back even further in history, uh, we've we've lived through this before. You know, we we had the kind of long depression in the nineteenth century, which is which was very similar in terms of you had two very powerful secular deflationary forces from globalization and widening inequality, and then you know early part of the twentieth century, politics decided that that kind of environment wasn't wasn't going to work anymore. So you had the start of the trade unions, you had the start of the welfare state, you know, government started to take a more, uh, a much bigger role in the economy than they had up until then. And I think, you know, that's the kind of, that's the kind of long super cycle that is beginning to turn. So you think about that long super cycle, you had the long depression in the 19th century. You, then in the 20th century, you had uh, a different type of mixed economy where we got governments more involved in the economy. We then got the very high inflation of the 70s. We spent 30 years destroying that economy and crushing worker power. And now, again, we're seeing this big secular super cycle beginning to turn. And I actually think that's quite a good, healthy development for the world because I didn't like the way the world, the way this world was heading before COVID. 
Uh, and I think, you know, it gives you a different type of market environment, but it's not necessarily bad. You know, I, I don't think this is a necessarily bad environment for financial markets. I just think it's a different environment for financial markets. And the really nasty environment for financial markets, which I, maybe it's the end game, but it's not what we're getting right now, is that kind of 1970s dynamic, because that is stagflation. And, you know, the big thing about the 1970s is about what it did to the bond equity correlation. So the bond equity correlation depends on the nature of inflation. So when inflation is pro-cyclical, so when it moves with the economy, which is what we've had over the past 20 years, you get a negative bond equity correlation. So, so bonds become this, this kind of you know, portfolio diversifier. If you start to get counter-cyclical inflation, which is what we had in the 1970s, which is stagflation, then suddenly you, your bond equity correlation flips from negative to positive, and then everything breaks down in your portfolio. And we've had a little taste of that over the past couple of months, and investors have hated it. Now, you know, I think it is just a taste of it. I think it's a taste of the 1970s rather than a 1970s regime. Um, but clearly, you know, the, the worry here is that central banks overreact to that. So let's zoom in a bit on now. What is your probability of recession? You've kind of suggested it's still slow growth, but if in a probabilistic framework, are you like, you know, it's pretty 50-50 right now. Whereabouts roughly in your head are you? Obviously, there's no uh, right or wrong answer. I think but... Europe, I think it's probably, um, it's very evenly balanced. It's probably 50-50 for Europe. You know, we've got, we've got inflation rapidly approaching 10%. And for the euro area, we have wages going up 1%. So this is a monumental squeeze on consumers. Uh, and so, you know, if you have to spend more on energy, you spend less on everything else. So Europe is getting this very acute recessionary force that is ripping through the economy right now. Um, China is probably in recession. Um, you know, it had this massive property slump before the lockdowns. It now has the lockdowns. All of the PMIs have tanked. So that's two parts of the world that are, are already in recession. For the US, I think the, the recession probability is quite low. I think probably 20%. I think it's I think it's pretty low. But the danger is that once you start to slow down, uh, then it's all, of, it's all about the labour market at this point. So the difference between recession and soft patch is basically about the labour market. Now, my sense is that because the labour market is tight, US companies are going to hang on to their workers. So we're not going to get, you know, immediate, um, immediately uh, people getting fired from their jobs. That's the, that's the kind of break-even point between recession and non-recession. So if these companies hang on to their workers because they don't think they can replace them if demand recovers, uh, then we don't get those kind of recessionary dynamics that kick in when people start to get laid off. So it's all about the resilience of the labour market. And I think, you know, balance sheets are in a pretty good shape. Um, you know, we're not yet at the level of interest rates that really squeezes the economy. And I think that given uh, the labour shortages, companies hang on to workers. And from a Fed perspective, you know, a slowdown in that sense is actually quite helpful because it's the labour market that they're worried about. They're worried about this shortage of labour becoming really acute. Um, and so that gives you a degree of resilience. Uh, but, you know, at this point, I think that the real recession story for the US is all about where inflation settles. Because if uh, inflation settles above 4%, then the Fed is effectively going to have to create a recession to get inflation back down. So, you know, that's the really critical issue. Where does inflation settle? So we have policy normalization right now, which is the first stage of what the Fed is trying to do. The second stage is where does inflation settle and what does the Fed have to do next? And if inflation settles above 4%, I think the probability of a, of a recession in the next 
you know, 12, 18 months is, is probably very high because, you know, you look at the last 11 tightening cycles from the Fed, there's basically been one, possibly two soft landings. And neither of those soft landings happened when inflation was above 4%. Um, you know, there's a very simple explanation for that, which is that if you have, you know, a real significant inflation problem, then your economy is already overheating. And the only way you can get inflation down is to is to actually force unemployment higher. And whenever unemployment goes higher, you're in a recession. So, you know, you have to believe that inflation is transitory to think we can avoid an inflation. We can avoid a recession right now. Yeah, and I, th- I think I've I've tilted to now more bearish than you on this. Um, I'm kind of also looking at 2008. And if you remember, inflation was at 6%. Yeah. All prices at 140. And the Fed had been cutting for six months into that, which was quite extraordinary. But I, I kind of feel like we're pretty close to the Fed pivot just because of how monetary conditions have tightened and what's been happening. I don't think we're there yet, but we're kind of much closer than people imagine. I think that if, you, if you're if you a Fed official, you probably look at this, the chart of the stock market and you say, you know, we're back to where we were just before the pandemic. That's not going to cause too much damage. So I don't think we're, we're quite at the point where the Fed is, is going to pivot. Uh, and I think the fact that inflation is so high and because, you know, they have this, this ghost of the 1970s hanging over them, you know, uh, Powell doesn't want to go down as the kind of Arthur Burns of the modern era. He wants to go down as the Paul Volcker of the modern era. Um, I think that makes them, uh, you know, quite reluctant to actually come in and try to support asset prices at this time. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think we're quite there in terms of the, the pivot. I, I think inflation naturally raises the hurdle. I think, you know, the difference with 2008 is that we, we, you know, we had a very serious banking crisis. And I just I just don't see that this time around. I think balance sheets are in a very different position. This, this is more of a, it's more like dot com in 2008. So, you know, 2008 was a leveraged financial bubble. When asset prices went down, the leverage became much worse. Um, the last couple of years, I don't think has been a leveraged asset price bubble. It's just been a pure asset price bubble. It's, it's like dot com. It's like tulip mania. Um, you know, it's it's just about asset prices going up very rapidly and coming down very rapidly. But it doesn't matter what I think, it's what central bankers think. And I think that they draw that parallel with dot-com rather than subprime. Um, you know, I, I think they see this as a very different type of dynamic to 2008. Yeah, I don't see the the financial banana skin this time around either. So it feels more like 2000. So, okay, so here we are now. How do people think about asset allocation in this? Because it's a bloody tricky environment because it feels like the market wants to take every position and shoot it in the head. What, what do they do? At, right now, I think it's about being defensive. Um, you know, it's about owning defensive parts of the, the stock market, even owning cash. You know, I think that, as I said at the, you know, the very start, the, the near term growth outlook is really quite nasty. A lot of these leading indicators are going to plunge. I think, you know, I don't think recession for the US is likely, but I think the recession narrative is going to gain a lot more momentum over the next two months because of the way the data is going to move. And I think that has to make you naturally defensive. I'm not sure that we're going to get um, the move from yields that you know really really you know, provides that kind of compensation for, for equity risk right now. I'm not sure that that bond equity correlation is going to kick in in the way that it has in the past. Just because you know the inflation is deteriorating at the same time, 
So the inflation picture is getting worse. Central banks are getting more hawkish. The Fed is talking about Volcker. The ECB is talking about the Bundesbank. The Bank of England changes its mind from one week to the next. <laughs> but clearly, you know, there's you've got this chief economist at the Bank of England who also talks about the Bundesbank. You know, I think they feel that they're 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 being tested right now and they have something to prove. And so it's quite difficult for yields to to really provide that that kind of offset to for, for asset allocation in that type of environment, you know, hawkish central banks, inflationary environment. The best case, I think, yields stop going up and stop making the, the tightening worse. Uh, but I think at the moment, this is all about defensiveness and cash. If you can look beyond this growth scare, this soft patch, this immediate recession risk, I think, you know, the next decade is all about the tangible 20s. And it's about a different type of portfolio. It's about getting exposure to the real economy. It's about commodities. It's about gold. It's about value stocks. It's, you know, looking at what's going to drive growth over the next decade. But, you know, that's a pretty long term way to think about asset allocation, given the environment that we face right now. And if you look at value versus growth, I mean, value has been going down as well in the last few weeks because this is just a, you know, selling off everything. So even though it provides a kind of relative trade, it's not getting as bad as growth, you know, in absolute terms, you're getting hosed on everything. Uh, and so, you know, this is just, I think this is naturally, you want to be, you know, very conservative right now. You know, I wouldn't be jumping back into any of this stuff. No, Dario, fantastic. Look, really, really interesting. Great perspective and different to most people, which I think is really valuable. So <laughs> look, thank you for that. Good to talk to you. Yeah. All right, my friend. All Take right, care. Thanks. Take care. Well, that was a great conversation. And let's get straight into my key takeaways. Looking at my notes, first, it comes to mind. It's all about getting exposure to the real economy for Dario Perkins. He calls this era the tangible 20s, where real assets will do well. That's things like gold, other commodities, and value stocks. Now, when speaking with Rao in May, he accurately said the recession scare would gain momentum. We've seen plenty of that. As a result, he says that it's best to own defensive parts of the market and cash. But he believes if you look beyond the current growth scare, there will be opportunities to be had over the next decade. And that's all predicated on a more inflationary environment. Now, finally, Perkins says it really doesn't matter what he thinks. It matters what central bankers think. And all the way back in May, he suggested that Jerome Powell would want to be remembered as the Paul Volcker of the modern era. With that, he accurately predicted we would not see a Fed pivot anytime soon. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.